Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, you have given to us the greatest of all gifts. You have given us the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus, you have given up the greatest of all offerings, for you have offered yourself on the cross. Holy Spirit, you have applied to our hearts not merely a tithe of all that the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished for the purpose of our salvation, but rather the full measure of all the riches of heaven that belong to those who believe. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would accept these, our meager gifts, tithes, and offerings as a token of our deep gratitude to you for all that you have planned, accomplished, and applied on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. chapter 7 and those verses we read. It's been a while since we've been together on John's Gospel. And in the season of Advent, as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, we find ourselves often singing, don't we, hymns, carols that speak about the one who is the God beyond all praising, who for our sakes became a man. And we are confronted by this most amazing miracle in the universe, in human history, in human experience, that the God who made this massive universe, and we keep discovering more and more of the sheer size and enormity of the universe in which we find ourselves hanging in space, that the God who made all of this should, in a moment of time, become human. In the words of an old hymn, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. 
and the degree to which he became human, the degree to which he humbled himself, I think becomes apparent as we read a passage such as we've read this evening. It all began as a private visit below the radar of the authorities until the point at which Jesus decided that having refused publicity up to this moment in Jerusalem, he would go public in his terms, at his time, and for his own purpose. And in doing so, he picks a very precious and a pivotal place to start his ministry in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you remember, is the, the region's religious and civil capital. And he chooses to stand in a public space, the best space in the whole of Jerusalem, which is full of small little streets, is the temple itself. The temple mount, the huge courtyards provide a great gathering area for tens of thousands of people as they come to the city, come to the temple, come to worship God. And he waits till that moment. He waits till people are gathered. Problem is, of course, Jesus has a bit of a history with the temple. John has told us that right at the very beginning of his ministry, he'd gone to Jerusalem. He hasn't been back since then to this point in John's gospel. He'd gone up to Jerusalem. You may remember the occasion. He gets a whip. He makes a whip. And he begins to whip out of the temple those who were abusing the, the temple and were buying and selling and turning it into a marketplace and making money, profit out of the the, the worshipers and the, uh, the pilgrims who came there to, to worship God. Jesus goes on the rampage. He causes great fuss. And the people in the temple are not particularly looking forward to seeing Jesus there again. And it's in the temple that he chooses to make this great public appearance in his little visit to Jerusalem. He waits till the fourth day, we're told, probably, so that all the pilgrims who are coming could be there. Those who had been delayed could get there. He's ensuring that in the middle of the feast, there will be maximum visibility. And so at the very high point of the feast, the most holy part, the most uh, commodious part in terms of the numbers of people, the Lord Jesus provokes a discussion among the, the people, about his credentials. And it's really about the credentials of Jesus that this passage before us is about. And even there, I want to pause for a moment and, and, and to say this, that here we have this religious figure who has dominated the Western world and people who are rejecting Christianity, and perhaps you're one of them this evening wholesale in our generation, are doing so because we think of Christianity as a powerful, influential movement, force, whatever institution in the world. And you need to understand that not only was it not like that, for the many people who came here uh, escaping persecution in other parts of the world to live, but it's not been like that in the history of the world. It's not like that for most Christians in the world tonight. And it most certainly was not like that for Jesus. In the beginning, here he is, in the capital city of Judaism. Here he is 
as we believe him to be Israel's Messiah, here he is, and in his public appearance, what are they doing? They're questioning his credentials. How much did God become a man? So much did he become a man that as man, people did not take him seriously as God. Well, of course not. He's a man. Not only that, but they don't take him seriously as a prophet. You see this. I have three points this evening. The first is this. Now, in this incident that's recorded here, we find Jesus' credentials dismissed. He was a teacher. And like many other teachers, he used the temple courts to assemble or gather his followers around him and instruct them. It was the best place in Jerusalem to have a crowd together in any one place. Many among the authorities presumed uh, were offended by him, by his presumption as they saw it, taking up this business of teaching the people, and they were raising the question. You can see this. This is this, uh, this question of who this man is was in their minds and in their hearts, and uh, they're questioning whether this man is the Messiah. That, that's their big question. And as he's teaching in the temple, they're raising the question as to whether or not Jesus has trained properly for the job. Uh, has he studied under the tutelage of some learned scholar in the rabbinical school? And it was always a source of surprise to the authorities that Jesus, lacking that formal education, was nonetheless able to articulate the teaching of the Scripture. He hadn't, he hadn't, in fact, studied under a famous rabbi. That probably meant that in his public speaking, he didn't follow the accepted rules for public speaking. The way you preach sermons as rabbis, Jesus probably didn't do it the way they did it. And so, therefore, they were, they were putting Jesus down. They were limiting people's expectations of him, and they were debunking his message. The Pharisees, the scribes, the doctors of the law who had studied under such luminaries as Gamaliel or Hillel, or who were connected to one or other of the various rabbinical traditions, would have looked disdainfully down their aquiline noses at Jesus, either in quiet or in vocal disdain at his teaching. And yet it's been the feature of Jesus' life, as we see in the, the Gospels, that from the earliest days, he was well able to engage in discussion. In fact, at the age of 12, Luke tells us, he was engaging in, with scholars in the temple at a fair high, fairly high level of theological debate and discussion. You may think a 12-year-old can't do that. I think you would be amazed at what a 12-year-old with the right interests and the right reading and the right concerns could do. He is engaging with them. And even at that young age, we're told, the people in the temple were amazed at his knowledge of theology. And once he started his public teaching, it was his style of teaching that provoked the authorities. Unlike the rabbis, Jesus did not marshal a series of quotations from this scholar or that poet or this book or that, that book. Jesus spoke with authority. 
He spoke from the Scriptures. He did not say, oh, well, this scholar says this, or this scholar says that. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth. Over and over again, Jesus defends his credentials. So we find Jesus' credentials being dismissed. Secondly, we find Jesus' credentials defended. He defends them himself. He has to. Nobody else is going to stand up for him. He has to state his own defense. And where does Jesus get this knowledge from? That's the big question. And the answer that you instinctively, I say you instinctively, you Christian people here, instinctively want to give is that, of course, Jesus is God. He wrote the story, for goodness sake. He wrote the theology. He understands it. He understands his own story. He understands himself. Uh, theology proper is the knowledge of God, the teaching about God, the theology of God. Jesus understands theology proper because he is God. But you'd be wrong. Jesus did not understand all this theology, and he did not understand the Bible because he was God. In his human nature, Jesus had to learn the Bible for himself. Jesus had to grow in knowledge the way you and I grow in knowledge. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. His human nature is quite distinct. It is distinct from his divine nature. Therefore, in his humanity, Jesus' knowledge is limited. For example, in Mark 13, Jesus says that he did not know the day or the hour of his return again. So the question is, did Jesus really know and pretend that he didn't know? Did Jesus really know, but he didn't want to get into the subject? Neither is true. The, the reality is he had taken on our humanity. He had really taken on our humanity. His human mind was bounded by the knowledge available to human minds. He was, as we will affirm in our songs over and over and over again at Christmas, vera homo, vera deus, truly God, truly man. One person, two natures, a divine and a human nature, distinct, not confused, in one person. So we're not surprised to find Jesus got tired, Jesus getting hungry, Jesus sweating, Jesus eating and drinking, crying real tears, saying that he didn't know some things in his human nature. Well, you say, haven't we already seen in John's gospel that sometimes Jesus knows supernatural things? He knows what's going on in the background of a, a woman who, of Samaria, and he can tell her the number of partners, sexual partners she has had. Doesn't it say in John's gospel that there are times he reads what's going on in the minds of the crowd, and especially the people uh, of the authorities, the, the Jewish authorities. He understands what they're thinking, and he can even anticipate what they're thinking. And even here in this passage, he does a similar thing. What's going on there? What's going on there, as Dr. Sproul puts it, is this, that that knowledge, which was supernatural knowledge, did not come from his humanity. That supernatural knowledge came as a communication from his divine nature to his human nature. That 
kind of communication was not always going on because it was voluntarily suspended by Jesus in his humanity, by our Lord in his humanity. In his divine nature, he's running the universe. In his divine nature, he knows all things. In his divine nature, he remains God. Charles Wesley is wrong when he writes in one of his hymns that he emptied himself of all but love. That's nonsense. He never emptied himself of his deity. He was always, is always God, even in his humanity. But in his humanity, in his human nature, he limits himself. And there are these flashes of communication from his divine nature to his human nature that you see in the mighty works that he does and in the mighty knowledge that he has. So the question is, about your credentials, Jesus, where did you get your credentials from? You can't tell us you just found this out for yourself. Somebody had to teach you. So he responds. He answers them. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. The age in which Jesus lived did not prize originality. They did not want you to go and do a PhD on something that nobody knew about. That, that, was, not, that was not regarded as a good thing. He'd have been dismissed as arrogant if he'd said he'd originated his own message. So here's a number of questions that I think emerge from the text. Where did his authority lie? He tells us. God had sent him. That word to send is important. Jesus has not come in his own authority. God has sent him. Jesus is not out making a name for himself or claiming a position for himself or introducing some novel teaching or a doctrine of his own invention apart from or distinct from the will of the one who sent him into the world. In fact, he tells us over and over again in this gospel, in chapter 5 and 8 and 12 as well as here, that he had heard and seen and obeyed and imitated what the Father had said and done. That's where his authority lay. And he's speaking to these people and he says to them, what should you do then in light of that? Instead of asking a question about authority, why don't you consider the teaching itself? Look what he says. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you want to talk about the authority issue, don't ask me to give you arguments for my authority. I want you to judge me on the basis of what I'm saying, of my teaching. Take it seriously. Take it to heart. Examine the teaching. If you look at, if you listen to him, if you look to see whether in his teaching he bears the marks of being from God or not, that will be the clinching matter. Because you see, the Lord Jesus understood that his mission was all bound up with the will of God. Jesus says to people, test the teaching. Anyone who truly wants to know and do God's will is promised that they will find out that Jesus' teaching is of God. I think one of the big ways of evangelism in our day and generation is to get people to just give themselves 10 weeks out of their lives to look at what the Bible says. Let the Bible speak for itself. I challenge people who, who don't profess to be Christians. I say to them, look, you can afford 10 
to our spots in your life before you die to consider Christianity, what it actually says, so that you can be absolutely sure it's nonsense or discover it to be true for yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you want to know whether it's true, if you want to know whether it's from God, look at it, teach it, study it. Who should they listen to? That's my third question. Jesus says they should listen to the person who's trustworthy, the one who speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He is saying something quite important. He's distinguishing himself from other teachers, especially false teachers. He's urging his hearers to take a serious look at these others and at him. Could they honestly look at him or listen to his teaching and conclude that he is seeking his own glory? Was it not true that in everything Jesus said and taught, he was challenging low views of God? He was encouraging high views of God. He was questioning their trite and pedantic doctrine. He, he was seeking to heighten the glory of the one who had sent him into the world to preach repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, look at what these men are doing. Look at what I'm doing. What is my goal? Listen to me. Listen to what I've been saying. What is my great goal? Is it not to exalt the name of God? Is it not to lift up the name of God, to make the name of God very high in your minds? Make you understand the law of God is far greater than you imagined, that the, the knowledge of God is far greater than you could ever have conceived or considered? He's challenging them to think. And he's saying this to them. If he is from God, and if he is seeking the glory of God who sent him, then he, therefore, is trustworthy and true, and there is no unrighteousness. That's really the word. There is no unrighteousness in him. What applies to God applies to Jesus. If you accept Jesus' teaching, you discover that God has set his seal upon it that he is true. Unlike the false teacher who deserves to be executed, Jesus, the Son of God, deserves to be believed. But he goes on to answer another question. Why should they listen to Jesus? And here he goes to the very heart of their attitude. Listen to him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? These people he's talking to are very proud of the law of Moses. The Pharisees saw themselves as the disciples of Moses, very much like Orthodox Jews do today. And here Jesus explains who it is that lies, who lies behind people's rejection of him. He says, fundamentally, it's a refusal to obey and keep the law of God. That expression, keeps the law, 
is a typically rab rabbinical statement. It means to act in such a way that the law is done. You see, Moses had given the law to Israel. That meant that they had insight into the will and teaching of God. They therefore had the means of testing Jesus' teaching, whether it was in line with the Word of God, whether it was the law that were God's Word written. They, had, they could take God's Word written, the law and the prophets, and they could take the teaching of Jesus, and they could examine whether the teaching of Jesus coincided with God's Word written. That's what he's challenging them to do. But he's saying, you know, for all your, for all your boasting in the law of Moses, I know what's going on in your heart. I know, though that you would argue till you were blue in the face, that you were the people who were upholding the law of Moses. In the depths of your heart, you are contemplating murder. Murder. You are contemplating the murder of your maker. That's what he's challenging them. Why are you trying to kill me, he asks. And this question cuts through the pious words and attitude. It cuts through the public facade of their lives. It exposes the evil in their hearts. Here his divine nature communicates with his human nature, and he has this insight into what's going on in their minds and hearts, what lies beneath their reactions to him, and he confronts them. Why are you trying to kill me? But you can see their reaction of embarrassment and feigned incredulity. Who? Us? <laughs> Pardon? What did you say? Murder? We? We keep the law. You have a demon. You must have a demon. There's something supernatural about what you're saying. Who is seeking to kill you? Name names. He saw more than they saw themselves. He knew the trajectory of their human heart. They were dismissing him as making an absurd accusation. Yet it turns out that the crowd would eventually collude with the authorities to bring his execution about. Now in this our Lord develops this idea of Moses' input. They prided themselves on the law of Moses, and so Jesus answers them like this. He says, you know, here's the issue for you. You boyos, I did one deed. That's why you want to kill me. I healed a man on the Sabbath day. That's what it was. This is all boyos. Let's, let's just look, you know, look into my eyes. This is what this is all about, he says. I did one thing that got up your nose. I healed a man on the Sabbath day. Now think about this for a moment. Moses gave you circumcision, the law of circumcision in the Mosaic law. Actually, he didn't make that up. It was there long before Moses came along, so it predates the law of Moses. The patriarchs, the fathers, they were given, first of all, the law of Moses. And circumcision is a sacrament. It's part of an important institution of ancient Israel. 
So important was it that Moses imported it entirely from the history of the, of the people of God into his law. And what does the law of Moses prescribe? That a man, that a boy should be circumcised on the eighth day after he's born. On the eighth day. Now, what happens when it's a Sabbath? Do you say, well, we're going to do it seven days or nine days? No, no, you always do it on the eighth day. So when is a Sabbath, guess what? The rabbi comes along with his little thing. And he scissors. It's kind of scary. And he snips, snips, and he's done the business. Isn't that, a, isn't that work? He's using an instrument. That's, the rabbis don't let you use instruments of any kind on the Sabbath day. That's work. Not only does he have an instrument, but he's using the instrument. Snips it. He's doing a work on the Sabbath day, but you don't think it's a work. You don't regard it as a work. The law of Moses prescribes circumcision, and if it falls in the eighth day, you do it. Why? Because it's a sacrament. It's an important thing. It's not regarded, therefore, as breaking the Sabbath day to perform the rite. It doesn't contradict or threaten the law of the Sabbath, even though the rabbi's arguments and tortuous casuistry might easily have devised some way of rationalizing while that, why that could very well be the case. Now says Jesus, you do that on the Sabbath. You, you keep the law regarding circumcision on the Sabbath. Now think about this for a moment. You want to kill me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. I took a man, a human being, who was broken, a human being who was devastated, who was immobile, who could not act like a human being, and I made that human being well on the Sabbath day. And I didn't use an instrument, no scissors, snip, snip, no scissors. It was with a word that I healed him. Do not judge by appearances, but with right judgment, Jesus says. This act of healing the paralyzed man was comprehensive, life-renewing, and total in a way that circumcision as a sacrament was not. But if circumcision in, in its true but limited importance should take place on the Sabbath day, Jesus argues, and not invalidate the law, surely the healing of a whole man must contribute even more to the fulfillment of the law. The law of loving your neighbor, perhaps. The law required no murder, which includes respect for human life and the presence of one who in fact could restore life where there was none meant that for Jesus to refuse to do so in the Sabbath would make him, make Jesus a Sabbath breaker. That would be tempting, wouldn't it, to look back on these people of Jesus' day with a sniff of superiority. We today scarcely know far less practice the law of Moses. And true, much of the ceremonial parts are fulfilled in the finished work of Christ, and much of the civil aspects are enfolded into the practice of church discipline. But the moral law still stands. And what do we do with God's moral law today? We obfuscate, obfuscate in order to accommodate to the culture we live in. 
Jesus challenges his hearers to judge well whether they are leaders or followers, clergy or laity, priests or people. No one can dodge the challenge of Jesus, no matter who they are that set themselves up in their conversations and debates and discussions and criticisms to judge him or debunk him. He challenges them to think deeper, to dig deeper, to look further into who he is, who he was, what he's done. If a person judges Jesus by what they see, they may very well walk away with the wrong impression. But in particular, Jesus wants them to judge his authority, not only by what he himself says and does, but against what God himself says and does in the law and the prophets. He's challenging them. We find Jesus' credentials defended as he brings them back to these realities. Well, the third thing in the passage is that we find Jesus' credentials debated. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man, the man they're, they're seeking to kill, is all this debate? If the authorities know that this man is claiming to be the Messiah, and they haven't arrested him yet, and they're letting him have this great crowd of people that he's speaking to in the temple, do they know something we don't know? Are they perhaps wondering, maybe he is the Messiah? That's what people were thinking. Can he be the Messiah is the question they were asking. This is one of the big things that they were facing. There was a view, apparently, among some of the people in Jesus' day, that when the Messiah came, he would come suddenly, he'd appear out of nowhere, that no one knew where he came from, he would just appear magically. We don't know where they got that teaching from, they didn't get it from uh, from the Scriptures, actually, there's nothing in the Scripture that gives that impression at all. The Messiah would just appear. But that's the view they had. And so when Jesus appears, and they're asking this question, is Jesus the Messiah? They say, no, he's not the Messiah. Look, we know, we know his background. We know about this man. We, we know where he came from, Nazareth, up north. We know Joseph was his father, Mary was his mother. That's what they believed. And so we read these words as Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, that is, as he cried out in proclamatory, prophetic speech, you think you know me? You think you know where I came from? In a measure, you're right. But let me tell you, in another sense, you are totally wrong. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. But I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Notice, he's repeating this to these people. I, I know him, that is the Father. I come from him, the Father. He sent me, that is the Father. He's making it absolutely clear to them. This is what he is claiming. He has come from God. Whatever they think they know about his origins. And they were right up to a point. He had a human birth. A supernatural conception, but a human birth. And he'd grown up in a human family. And he was human. You cut him, he would bleed. Pin him to a cross, he will die. 
But he's saying to them, you don't know me. And you don't know, therefore, the one who sent me, because get this is, this is, get this, he's saying to them. You cannot, no one can, any longer know the God of Israel who does not know me. See, this is the great pivotal moment. This is the pivotal moment in the history of redemption. Jesus is saying to these people, from now on you cannot say, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, period. From now on, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has broken into humanity. He has broken in, not just with revelation, but in incarnation. God has become a man. From now on, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is only a partial knowledge of who God is unless you see that this God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pivotal moment. I know Him. I have come from Him. He sent me. You don't accept that, you don't know Him. He says that. You do not know Him. You do not know Him. That was their moment. It was their moment to believe. And they were going to pass up in that moment to believe. This is your moment to believe. This is your moment tonight to believe. But what did these people do? Look, they're seeking to arrest him. They're afraid to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's in the purposes of God. Some believed in him. And they said, when the Messiah appears, will we see any better signs than these that this man is doing? And those that believed, perhaps believed inadequately. But they believed. And tonight, I guess, in this room, there will be a number of reactions to Jesus. There will be those who will leave still debating, who is he? Those who will still take away these words of Jesus to us this evening when he says, I know him, that is God, I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. You'll go away thinking about that. Is there anything in Jesus' life that indicates that that claim of his is true? I want to put it to you that the reason we take that claim as true, the reason we take that claim as true at Christmas time, and the reason we take the virgin birth and the story of Christ coming into the world as true, actually is because we see the whole of his story through the prism of his resurrection from the dead. You cannot disconnect the resurrection from the crucifixion or the resurrection from the incarnation or the resurrection from these claims that Jesus is making. We understand who he is because God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And you are not being intellectually honest. You are not being intellectually honest with yourself unless you give yourself to study his teaching and ask yourself, is this man whom God raised from the dead, and study the evidence. Whom God raised from the dead, 
someone I should be listening to. And if you study the teaching, you will know. Jesus promises that. You come with an open mind. You ask for his help. You say, show me, reveal to me. You study the teaching, Jesus says. You will know that the doctrine, the teaching, is of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this evening as we have studied this little bit of the Bible, that you would help us to listen to Jesus' words about you. I know him. I come from him. He sent me. He knew you. He came from you. You sent him. And you sent him for us. Is he the Messiah? You raised him from the dead. You send him forth, you set him forth to Jew and Gentile alike, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. You set him forth as the one Messiah of Israel, the one through whom our knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is expanded to infinity. Because that God, you are the God of, of our, and Father of our Lord Jesus. Draw us, we pray. To yourself through him this evening in his strong name.